Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Three Atlanta museums are in today's lineup. In November of 2019, the High Museum of Art presented the first museum exhibition devoted to the work of Virgil Abloh, the barrier-breaking black artist who died someday of a rare form of cancer. He was only 41. Later this hour, we'll listen back to my conversation about the impact of Virgil Abloh's art with Kevin Tucker, the chief curator of the High. We'll also hear about a celebratory exhibition at the Bremen Museum of Jewish Heritage in Atlanta. History with chutzpah marks the Bremen's 25th anniversary with stories, photos, and artifacts that celebrate Jewish life in the South. First, the story behind the story of Rudolph. In 1964, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer beamed into television screens nationwide. The groundbreaking stop-motion special took us on an adventure with a misfit reindeer and his friends. Now, the Center for Puppetry Arts is pulling back the curtain to tell us the origin story and development of Rudolph in an exhibition called Christmas Town. Here via Zoom to talk more about the show with rare puppets, our museum director, Sarah Dilla, and puppeteer, Anna Williford. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Sarah, can you tell us how Rudolph's story began with a department store copywriter named Robert May? This is a story we've been diving into a lot this season. Um, You don't often think about our favorite holiday characters 
as having an origin story. They just kind of are there. They're there every year on your ugly sweater or in the grocery (laughs) store over the radio. But Rudolph, as a character, was actually born in the late 1930s as part of a project to create a giveaway book for the holidays for children that the department store would give away every year. Uh, And in 1939, that book was written by Robert May, who worked for their advertising team. And he worked very hard throughout the whole year on this story of Rudolph, who was a character that ended up having a lot of personal meaning to him because it was the year that his wife was very sick and passed away. And the story became kind of a coping mechanism for he and his daughter. And he produced this 32-page little illustrated paperback for Montgomery Ward to give away in the 1939 holiday season. Uh, And it was a wild success and and people came in droves and they gave away about two and a half million copies of (gasps) So it it kind of started Rudolph on a big path towards commercial success and integration as kind of part of one of our bank of characters through the holidays. We have such a history with this story as a puppet theater. And so this year with a recent benefactor giving a a wonderful loan to us, uh, we were able to do a little something that provides a bit more of this history to why Rudolph is so recognizable and popular along with our own productions. Am I correct in recalling that the copywriter for Montgomery Ward was Jewish. It's funny because so many of our Christmas creators actually are Jewish. And so this story of the founding of or the creation of Rudolph brings together a lot of Jewish history in, in the creation of popular culture for Christmas. Um, and so also Johnny Marks, a songwriter who was uh, the brother-in-law of Robert May, uh, married into this Rudolph family and, and <laughs> kind of took it on himself as well. Uh, Johnny Marks is a, a Jewish man and a very successful songwriter who wrote so many of our kind of Christmas classics. So it's a funny history. Irving Berlin wrote White Christmas. Yes. We can share the universal message of the holiday in terms of peace and light. And of course, children's stories are so welcome by every culture. It's interesting hearing you talk about the story of Rudolph as coping mechanism for the writer because he is a misfit. He's an other, and that's something that at the Center for Puppetry Arts you do so well in teaching tolerance and embracing others for differences. And and this story is certainly a prime example. Yes, it, uh, it absolutely is. Anna, please tell us more about the Rankin-Bass puppets and about your production. So we've been doing Rudolph at the Center for Puppetry Arts for, gosh, this is our 11th year. And many of us, the puppeteers in the show, have been a part oh. of it for 
many, many years. Some are even original members. We have one original member from the cast and there are six of us puppeteers and the entire production is the exact replica of the Rankin and Bass claymation special that so many people know and love. And the script is the same, the characters are the same and the puppets were actually modeled completely after the claymation special. So every single detail was approved and went through an entire screening process to make sure that they have the joy and the look and every part of them brings the same energy as the Rankin and Bass special. So we rehearse the show for three weeks, then we bring it up to the main stage. It's such a special show. Uh, we have children come, we have school groups come, we have adults come by themselves and people of all generations find so much joy and comfort in these characters that so many people have grown up with and people know this story globally. So being able to connect in, in the same way, in the same room over the Christmas holiday is such a special experience for everyone, audiences and puppeteers. <laughs> Emma, do you play the character of Rudolph? I do. I play the character of Rudolph, and I also play Mrs. Claus, also known as Mama, <laughs> and then a few characters here and there. there. So there are six of us puppeteers, and there are almost 100 individual puppets, uh, including all of our puppet props that we have, and we're managing all of them. We do all of the puppetry, we do all the voices, we do all of the singing live. Everything is completely live. We're moving the sets. And it's funny because we always joke that there's two shows going on at the same time. There's the show above the playboard that all of the audience gets to see. And then there's the show under the playboard where there's all of us doing this intricate dance and our own choreography on these little rolling carts so that we can all move around and get to where we need to be and and continue the scene. So it's fascinating. <laughs> Does someone videotape that or film it? I wish. <laughs> Whenever we get to show people the actual puppets and what backstage looks like, it's such a fascinating experience because there's an entire life going on that you don't know about and getting to see the puppets up close and realize they aren't these tiny puppets. They're substantial in size. The yearling reindeers, which are kind of the teenage reindeers, they're all, gosh, about shoulder width. And the larger reindeer are even bigger than that. And we have a big bumble snow monster. That's a huge body puppet. So it's kind of like a mascot's costume, but even bigger. And it's so huge. And every time people get to see it up close, it's breathtaking, you know? Oh, wow. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with Sarah Dilla, Museum Director of the Center for Puppetry Arts and puppeteer Anna Williford about the holiday production Christmas Town. So, your Rudolph, how does it feel to be part of this classic Christmas story? And does your nose keep glowing bright? 
my nose glows all season. (laughs) It's wonderful. It's such a special show. And the story is so dear. And since all of us have worked together so much, there's a, a special bond between us. So getting to do these scenes together and getting to play this iconic character that's going through his own journey to self-discovery and self-acceptance is such a special thing because he would never have gotten there without this incredible community of, of Yukon and Hermie and these other misfits that kind of bring him to this realization that what he has that's so different that he's been so ashamed of is something so beautiful and special. And I think we all have those moments in our life where we are realizing those things about ourselves that I thought this is a flaw. And now I realize it's, it's something special about me. And that's such a wonderful story for everyone. It is. Sarah, can you tell us about Sensory Friendly Sundays? Yes, we, our education department here regularly throughout the year offers Sensory Friendly Day, uh, typically on Sundays. It's an initiative that connects the entire center uh, and our offerings and makes them approachable to a new community and to communities that might have sensory sensitivity concerns. And so we do simple modifications in lighting and sound, uh, and we have sensory items out for offer to help kind of the experience of the day. We do things like having what's called a social story, um, which gives visitors and potential visitors a little bit of a look into what a day at the center will be like before they get actually on site. And even when they get on site, in case they need a bit of coaching of, of what the what the space and what the experience will be like. So it crosses our offerings. Uh, we do these modifications in our museum galleries uh, and also in the theater productions that we do. Anna, how are the puppeteers trained to work within that environment? So we actually do an adjustment for our sensory-friendly shows where at the end of our, our shows that we do throughout the week, we usually will do a demonstration at the end where we bring up some of the puppets and we show how the rod puppets work. We show how we move the scenery. We show some of the body puppets. So when we do the sensory friendly shows, we bring those puppets up before the show so that everyone in the audience can see the puppets before the show starts, see how we work them, see that even though they can't see us puppeteers, we're there the entire time just underneath the playboard, um, manipulating the puppets, so that everything that happens during the show isn't so surprising. Mm -hmm. Reducing any fear or anxiety about what's unfolding on stage. Sarah, can you tell us what viewers will be able to see and touch in the exhibition? So the exhibition is this look into the history of where the Rudolph story came from. And so I often like to say it's an easy kind of three-part history. The first part is the Montgomery Ward book. And then through marriage, Johnny Marks comes into the equation and there's the song that we all know. And then that third part is uh, where we get into the source material for the 
theater production that we do. It's that 1964 stop motion puppetry, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer that's produced by Rankin and Bass. And so this exhibition is really built, of course, to show this context behind this very familiar character, but also really to spotlight uh, these two amazing puppets that we are able to have uh, on long-term loan at the center from an anonymous, generous donor. And they are the Santa and Rudolph, a young Rudolph, from that production, which was created by the Rankin and Bass Production Company. So in the exhibition, visitors can learn, learn a bit more about this history of Rudolph, uh, but also the making of this television special uh, that we have then adapted for stage puppetry. And so it, it gives you that behind the scenes peek at, at how these types of productions work while also learning some great pop culture. Museum Director of the Center for Puppetry Arts, Sarah Dilla, and puppeteer Anna Williford, Christmas Town. The story behind the story of Rudolph will be on view through January 2nd. More information will appear on our website, wabe.org slash city lights. The barrier-breaking black designer Virgil Abloh sadly passed away Sunday at the age of 41. He had a rare form of cancer. Last year, Atlanta's High Museum hosted Figures of Speech, the first museum exhibition devoted to Virgil Abloh's work. In a moment, we'll listen back to my interview about the show with Kevin Tucker, chief curator of the High Museum. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. The barrier-breaking black designer and artist Virgil Abloh, sadly, passed away on Sunday at the age of 41. Abloh was the artistic director of Louis Vuitton menswear, as well as the founder of his own brand, off-white, and his approach to design inspired comparisons to the likes of Jeff Koons and Andy Warhol. The High Museum of Art in Atlanta 
presented the first museum exhibition devoted to the work of Virgil Abloh, Figures of Speech. When the show opened in November of 2019, I spoke with the High's chief curator, Kevin Tucker. Here, he explains Abloh's approach to art and design. This gets to sort of age-old discussion relative to design between the consumer and the producer, the producer of art, the creative process. And he's very interested in that tension between the two and the relationship of being a tourist. You might think about you know that word in terms of surveying the landscape and being a purist, the creative side, the, the designer, the implementer who has a particular vision that they are providing for whatever they're creating at the moment. He talks a lot, too, about the importance to him of branding and image identity and wordplay and all of these other elements that come into it. And so the visitor experience acknowledges that and his creative experience and that relationship that he builds, even through the exhibition and certain moments in the exhibition, where you look at things as he does as a creator, and then you might look at other things, say his clothing displayed very intentionally on clothing racks in almost a retail-like setting as a consumer rather than a creator. So that tourist and purist, that's sort of the play. We have this, I think, a wonderful moment in the exhibition. As you exit the exhibition and you're going to the museum elevators, and one of the elevators is labeled tourist and the other elevators labeled purist. Uh-huh. So you have your choice. Hopefully, people have both experiences. You know, They can take both elevators. And that's what he wants you to do, look at things from those. Have you observed the occupancy of either or both of the elevators? (laughs) Well, I think because it's at the exhibition, by then the visitor understands, hopefully reading the text within the exhibition and hearing Virgil talk in his videos that are included in the exhibition, that they have that moment of understanding of where he is with that. So it's, I don't know if people take an intentional choice or just the first available. (laughs) Virgil Abloh's second clothing brand was named off-white. Why did he choose that name? He is very much making a a pointed statement about race and identity throughout his work. He's interested in engaging with that in a full way, and certainly that's something that the section in the exhibition called Black Gaze confronts in a very direct way, whether it's the works that he's producing or whether it's his challenges that he had to meet in the fashion industry in his really meteoric rise um, and fame that came with it and um, being selected in this last year to lead the Louis Vuitton menswear line. So it's sort of a groundbreaking moment. Uh, An African-American man has made the head of a prestigious French fashion house and line. That name, Off-White, I think very much speaks to where is he coming from as a creative artist and where is he coming from as an individual and an African-American who's very interested in history and and legacy and the challenges of the African-American community over the years. Abloh has said that some of his clothing designs were inspired by surrealism and dreamlike visions. Is he referring to the art movement of surrealism? Well, I think he he's certainly very savvy in, in terms of surrealistic juxtapositions and that subversion of expectations that is part of 
the surrealist movement and part of, say, even the broader definition of what is surrealist without directly referencing the movement. I think that is very clear in his work. What is perhaps even more pointed than, say, you know, a direct reference to the whole body of work of the surrealists um, themselves are direct references to so many other artists that he's been interested in, whether it's been Caravaggio, whether it's been Marcel Duchamp. Those works are directly called forward in his work. One of the works that I love, which is, appears in a photograph early in the exhibition by Jurgen Tellers, he's wearing um, one of his designs with R. Mutt on it, which is the name of Marcel Duchamp, and that goes to this Dadaism, right? And, and that's wonderful because it speaks very much to the found object, right? Taking, whether it's a common piece of bathroom equipment and turning it into a sculpture. <laughs> that was very right? elegant. <laughs> or, in his case, drawing from so many different sources and presenting it in a new context. And I mean, that is something I think is, is key to understanding his work. Has... Ablo spoken about or addressed his attraction to the Italian Renaissance painter Caravaggio. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, he has. I mean, that image appears, you know, his, his earliest uh, Pyrex vision work from 2012, where it was really not intended as a, a commercial line, but rather sort of an experiment that lasted about a year for the production initially of a, a video where he's taking the image of a Caravaggio painting, the crucifixion, and putting that art history and that art historical context and his admiration for an artist, as he put it, that could make a change. Caravaggio is always attributed to you know, his use of chiaroscuro and sort of revolutionizing a painting at the time. And, and I think that admiration for that person being able to sort of make a revolutionary change in the art world or the design world in this case and beyond um, is something that he finds very compelling in addition to just having a love again for that history and that work. How does Virgil Abloh honor the contribution of streetwear to contemporary clothing design? Certainly streetwear and Abloh, the concepts are inseparable at this moment as he's taken this tremendous lead in defining contemporary streetwear through his work. But it's part and has been part of a larger notion of streetwear since from 1970s and into the 80s. And because he is a DJ, because his early work was tied to the music industry and his relationship with Kanye West and others, his sensitivity to streetwear, I think it makes for not simply compelling works, but a compelling story for him. As he puts it, streetwear is not a style. You can't simply say, well, it's one thing or another in terms of what it looks like, but it is something that is drawn from a certain sense of grit and reality and struggles and challenges and even going back to the Pyrex vision line, you know, the tension there of how do you escape the street? You know, that was very much a commentary that came through in those series of designs. And that, it was the, you know, the vision of to escape the street, be a sports hero, or you had to be part of the drug scene, Pyrex, you know, cooking of drugs. And so what he wanted was to create not a sort of a despondent vision of, well, we're trapped in that, but rather something that says escape from that and aspire to higher things. So his, his streetwear 
as much as it's a celebration of street culture, it is also a call to arms, as it as it was. And in um, fact, he addresses social issues through his brands. Absolutely. How is that illustrated? How is that revealed in the clothing? He's done a number of designs, and I think in particular his collaborations, as he, he's done with Jenny Holzer and with Arthur Jaffa and others that are represented in the exhibition. One of my favorite works that's referenced in exhibitions, uh, a design for a jacket in collaboration with Arthur Jaffa, uh, Wakanda Never, referring to the Black Panther Marvel movies. Again, it's sort of a statement that the idea of a utopian black community, that's a fantasy. That is not just going to be created by a movie or by that imagery, but rather it's, again, I think, a very much a call to arms. And that he does again and again and again in his work. And it's interpreted as a call to arms? It's not interpreted as... A put down? Well, you might say that it is, it's questioning how we can come up with a sort of a commercial image and say that image represents a fantasy that we should, you know, say, oh, that's it and that we're done and it's, there's a solution in an image. I think what he wants to do is he wants to take an image and push you farther than that and don't be satisfied with that one image. Don't be satisfied with what that represents and instead think about the meaning behind it. All great art does that, right? It, it inspires you to think about the layers of meaning behind it. In some cases, it's subtle. In some cases, it's much more overt in his work. I think this is why he's also very interested in multidisciplinary work, sort of moving beyond fashion, moving beyond clothing, and creating sculpture, and creating paintings, and creating things that talk about that sort of experience. There's one work in the exhibition which is it speaks very directly about Climbing the ladder, getting out, getting upward, moving, and it's, it's, it's this blue ladder made of foam, and you can't climb it. So it, it has a, a negative connotation to it because it's lying flat in the gallery. But I think, again, it's a challenge. Virgil Abloh has been compared to Andy Warhol and Jeff Koons for the way he responds to pop culture. What is the common theme these artists address? I think, well, that it is most directly pop culture and the engagement and the reinterpretation and the reuse of imagery, whether, again, it's wordplay or image play. You can look at some of his designs. He, he draws from what he enjoys. He draws from what he likes. And I think you might look at something like one of his designs um, for uh, Ikea. There's a a chair design. And if you're familiar with the history of design, you can certainly see direct references to um, particular works by the designer Paul McCobb from the 1950s. And we think about Warhol, we think about Coons doing the same thing. Uh, Coons taking old master paintings and just adding his element to it, uh, you know, a circular element in the middle of a painting, and it becomes Jeff Coons' own. Andy Warhol uh, painting uh, Brillo boxes and it becoming his own, Campbell's soup cans, etc. I think Abloh is just a continuation of this embrace of pop culture. I think where he differs is that, yes, he's an artist, but he's also a designer. And by being a designer and having these works mass produced, suddenly 
there's, I think, an even greater awareness simply because of the volume. They no longer have quite the same preciousness, but they're increasingly out there. And that is what I find interesting ultimately about design is that tension and awareness as the works become increasingly part of uh, the, the public domain, as it were. Tell us a bit about the piece called Screenshot. The image um, is drawn directly from sort of FaceTime imagery. So he kind of blows that up in sort of a monumental way. Some might argue that taking a screenshot of the artist on FaceTime mm-hmm. is not art. How would you defend screenshot as art? It's part of the creative process. My background is in design, so I have a very holistic view of what art is. It is something where creativity is applied, and there is a result. And in this case, the creative expression of taking that moment and creating a screenshot, how is it any different, really, than a photographer taking a photograph, simply because it's digital media, simply because it's something that is so common in our daily life that suddenly we have to say, no, that's not art. I think it's the transformation. It's taking that image in the first place, taking that screenshot, quite literally, transforming it into this monumental, oversized portrait that hangs on the wall. That's all part of a creative process of thinking about that image that first appeared on someone's phone and capturing it and translating it. That's art. That's creativity. What is the story behind the installation piece called You're Obviously in the Wrong Place? Well, um, that's a direct reference to the movie Pretty Woman, where the line is used with Julia Roberts' character saying, you're not in the place that you should be. And it's very condescending and dismissive. And it, too, is another work that speaks very much directly personally to him, as well as more broadly to the African-American community. Again, African-American designer and fashion designer who comes to this prominent position in a French fashion house. Are you obviously in the wrong place? Well, he's not in the wrong place. He's very much the right place. He's Mm -hmm. the place that he should be in. But it is intended to be this statement that you say, wait a minute, I should be able to counter that. Maybe I'm supposed to be in the right place. I'm here in this exhibition. Virgil is there in, in Paris and, and connecting to this, this fashion house. And uh, it is a message. And what I particularly like about that work, too, is it's not simply this truly neon sign hanging on the wall with glowing letters, but it flickers various letters on and off. I think, to me, that suggests a, a certain uh, decay and disruption in that statement, that statement, you're in the wrong place, is falling apart. Since figures of speech opened, you've already drawn large crowds to the high. And at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, the show was, I think, among the most highly attended in that museum's history. What do you think it is about virtual Abloh's art that attracts so many people? I think design, it's a combination of of elements. So here you have this young creative force who's very much interested in drawing from pop culture, 
He's very much interested in drawing upon his own training as an architect, as someone who's, who studied architecture, to build something new in terms of um, his creative endeavors. And I think that reflects a certain aspect of our times, right, With the creative aspect of Everyone wants to be their own photographer. Everyone wants to be involved in making things and doing things across the spectrum. And we see that with digital creativity. We see it with making music. We see it in all of those elements. And here we have an artist and designer who has a background studying architecture, who's worked in the music industry, he's worked in fashion, he's been doing painting, he's been doing sculpture. And I think so much of his appeal lies in being this energetic Renaissance person. He wants to touch upon so many different elements. He wants the world to be his playground. And I think that excites people. The High Museum of Art's chief curator, Kevin Tucker, from our 2019 interview about the exhibition of Virgil Abloh's work, Figures of Speech. Abloh passed away Sunday at the age of 41. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. A 25th anniversary Silver Jubilee is sometimes celebrated with a party. The Bremen Museum of Atlanta is celebrating its Silver Jubilee with chutzpah for three years. The anniversary exhibition History with Chutzpah opened earlier in the fall and it's on view at the Bremen Museum in Midtown. Joining us now are Leslie Gordon, the executive director, Jane Levy, who co-curated the exhibition, and director Adam Copeland of Flying Carpet Theatre Company. He's board chair of the Bremen. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. Let's start with chutzpah. The Yiddish word is so often used by Jews and non-Jews. It's practically standard English and rarely italicized when we see it in print. How do you define chutzpah? It's Leslie. The interesting thing about chutzpah is there was a lot of discussion around the meaning. For us, it means nerve and guts and moxie and all of those things that make you a um, dynamic and daring soul. I think it also has had a negative connotation, nerve or audacity, whereas we like to think of it also as a synonym for savvy. Do you agree? You're right that he's got nerve can be construed multiple ways. But I think that what our group, what brought people over the line who remembered the early Yiddish meanings that were negative was an article in Forbes magazine that said, chutzpah is the new charisma. <laughs> I love it. Well, can you give us an overview of 
the sections of the exhibition. I know it's divided into six parts. What are the themes? It's Jane. We began to pick out the stories we like, the stories that we thought told different aspects of the Jewish experience. And we realized after a while that the stories we were choosing sort of organized themselves into different sections. So courage and conformity, hope and survival, success and loss, patriotism and perseverance, benevolence and community, and murder and mayhem. And there were people within these sections who displayed chutzpah. Adam, as I listened to the various sections being named, I thought there's a dramatic arc here. Let's let the director weigh in. Do you feel like there is this overarching theme to those you are featuring? The stories in this exhibition are surprising and fantastic. And I got the pleasure, though I'm a board member, really my main relationship to this exhibition is that of audience member. And I got the pleasure of seeing it a couple of days ago. And first of all, the experience of it is unlike anything I've been a, a part of in Atlanta or certainly at the Bremen, you walk into this little antechamber that's reminiscent of the uh, cabinets of curiosity of old, sort of what uh, the experience of being in a very tailored and small museum might have been like 150 or 200 years ago. And you press a secret button and it opens up into this world of these six different categories with these stories featured through the objects that bring them alive, as well as streaming interviews and video feed. And so this comparison of what an old museum experience is like into this very 21st century experience of understanding and digesting different stories through the objects that bring them alive is incredibly refreshing and also dynamic and fun. So just as an audience member, I was really filled with joy for the, the Bremen to be able to do this. And I will say that part of my experience also in terms of thinking about the different ways that some of these stories come alive is that some of it, if you've lived in Jewish Atlanta for a while are relatively, uh, you might say chestnuts. They're stories that a lot of us have understood or known about for a while, but there are a lot of surprising tales of people I'd never heard of with, with very dramatic stories or angles on stories that I'd never would have thought about. And I think it writ large, it paints a picture of a hundred and well, more, 200 and some odd years of Jewish life in Georgia with, I think, a, a picture of a smaller community within a larger community that really reflects the dynamism of this small community, that they, in some cases, were philanthropists, in other cases, victims of oppression, in some cases, 
people who bravely fought for what they believed in and in all cases are compelling stories to see up on the wall or through the objects that are there. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Loris Wrights, speaking with the Bremen Museum's Jane Levy, Leslie Gordon, and Adam Copeland about their 25th anniversary exhibition, History with Chutzpah. Who are some of the people highlighted in their section, some of those special stories? So Anne, Courage and Conformity is Elliot Levitas, and many people recognize Elliot as a five-term congressman from Atlanta, but I don't know how many people know that he defended the Blackfeet Indian nation against the federal government's mismanagement of American Indian lands and trust funds that have been going on since the 1880s. If you look at Hope and Survival, which really tells the stories of a number of Holocaust survivors who came to Atlanta, the story that really touches my heart is the one of Eva Judith Weiss Murray, whose mother survived a labor camp in Budapest and then emigrated to New York City. But Eva, I think she was probably five because of visa restrictions. She couldn't go with her mother. So when she finally got a visa, here is this small five-year-old child on a ship to America by herself, and she's wearing a cloth sack around her neck that has her name and says, I'm going to meet my mother. Please be kind to me and help me because I am still small. I was intrigued with Morris Abrams' story, and I was hoping you could talk about him. So Morris Abram is from South Georgia. He uh, became a leading civil rights lawyer in the 50s. And he not only was able to unmask the Klan, but he was key in getting Reverend King, Martin Luther King, released from prison right on the eve of this 1960 presidential election. Morris Abram fought for years to get the discriminatory voting system in Georgia changed. And um, in 1963, the Supreme Court ruling one person, one vote, he gets a lot of credit for that um, particular vote carrying. I never knew about the Macy's connection. Would you tell us about Isidore and Ida Strauss? Sure. Isidore and Ida Strauss actually lived in Talbotton, Georgia. Wait, how do two Bavarian Jews end up in that little place in Georgia? No, he went to Columbus first, then he wound up in Talbotton. And then he and his brother went to New York and they opened what was the China and Glass Department in Macy's department store. 
and eventually they bought R.H. Macy. He and his wife are remembered. And I think, you know, so many people have seen the movie Titanic. So in that film, there's a scene of a couple on the bridge of the Titanic as the ship is sinking. And it's gotten to the point where women and older men are being allowed into the lifeboats. And in the film, Ida gets into the lifeboat and Isidore refuses to get in. And in the film, she says, if you're not coming, I'm not going. And she gets out. And the last scene of them in the film is in one of these beautifully opulent rooms on the Titanic. And the ship is at a 45 degree angle and they're holding hands. And the family lore is that quote, if you're not coming, I'm not going. And so they went down with the ship. Very moving. Adam, you talked about the innovative display and the curios. There were two items in particular that caught my eye, two unusual artifacts that are on view. Would you talk about that? What, what caught your eye? One belonged to Sam Greenblatt. Ah, right. Yes. I was sitting with a, a buddy of mine, a high school buddy of mine, and uh, he said, would you believe my mom has a bagel from the Spanish-American War? And I was like, what are you talking about? And he went on to explain that a, an ancestor of his went as a soldier under Teddy Roosevelt off to the Spanish-American War, and mom, like any nice Jewish mother, packed him up with a load of bagels. And <laughs> they sat at the bottom of his rucksack. My friend said, you know, whether it was fumigated or just the incredible amounts of unwashed soldier gear and BO or whatever it was, something about this combination basically petrified this bagel so that it became something that was rock hard and um, perfectly preserved in its rock hard status. And then this bagel just sat in the family home with family lore. We, we like to think this may literally be the oldest existing bagel in the world. I want to think about Teddy Roosevelt noshing on a bagel. <laughs> the stories are fascinating. I have to say mazel tov to the Bremen. Before we go, Leslie, I was hoping you could speak about why it is important to have a Museum of Jewish Heritage and Culture in Atlanta. Well, I think that museums are so important because through our archives, through our stories, we're keeping people alive. We're keeping stories alive. And we really have a responsibility to the past. It goes back to the old saying about to understand the present, you've got to understand the past. And therefore, I think we have lots of stories to tell. 
I think those stories are similar to other stories of other cultures, other belief systems. And I hope that people from all walks of life will come in and see that our stories are similar to their stories. And in that respect, we'll do something important to bridging a lot of the misunderstandings that happen between communities these days. The Bremen Museums, Jane Levy, Leslie Gordon, and Adam Copeland. More information about their 25th anniversary exhibition, History with Chutzpah, is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll look back on the prolific life of Broadway great Stephen Sondheim with WABE music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart. Plus, we'll hear about the Atlanta Gay Men's Chorus's 40th anniversary holiday concert. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights, or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.